Well, this morning in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we finally made it through all of those sayings of Jesus in the midst of the sermon, all those points and parts to now to the point of building our house on the rock, the rock of his word, those who hear and do what Jesus has held out for us in this sermon. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 7. Love it if you would turn there with me. Uh, we have paperback Bibles near you. If you didn't bring a Bible yourself, you're welcome to grab one of those and uh, turn with us to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. We're really going to cover the remainder of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And next week, come back with a, a final week of conclusion to wrap up this sermon series. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. Please follow along with me. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And they, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this sermon. Thank you for Matthew's record of it and presentation of it to us that we can hear, we can receive, and we can be changed and so walk in the doing of it. Lord, we confess this morning we are in great need of you. We've already begun that confession, but we confess it continually. We haven't said amen to our confession. We we want to continue to walk as a people who need to be humbled by your word this morning, and so I pray that you would do just that. And like a good father, you would send your spirit as the good gift to work among your people that we might not be sandy land builders, but we might be transformed and so be founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning's passage, this section, it's... it's um, Three teachings, but they're held together by three metaphors, and each of the three metaphors is holds out a duality. Uh, two things are held out for us. We begin 
by looking at verse 20, verse 13 in the section there, where Jesus gives a very short metaphor and presentation of two gates. Now, look at it with me. I said, I hope you have your Bibles open and continue to follow along with me so that we can see the words that are there. And at the beginning of verse 13, it says, enter by the narrow gate. The instruction for us is to enter by the narrow gate. The most important thing that we can see about this powerful metaphor is Jesus's instruction to enter. Here's the deal. He doesn't stand between two gates and say, okay, look, I want to present to you two possible ways. Now you make the call. I'm going to give you information about both of them. And then you make the decision about where you want to go. No, he stands by one gate. In fact, the argument could be made elsewhere in scripture that he is the other gate. And he calls out, come over here, enter by this one. Jesus isn't standing there between two gates helping you carefully weigh the option. He's standing by one and he's calling us to enter. He is the narrow gate through which we enter into the way of the king and his kingdom. If we listen to him and we enter by following his voice, we would have no need for any information about any other gate, right? So what does this warning have to do with us? Why doesn't he just stand beside one gate and say, hey, over here, nowhere else, only here? Well, there's a warning for us when he gives us information, gives information to his disciples about another gate, the wide gate and the wide path. It's a warning of what we are to expect on the journey, having entered through Christ into the way of the kingdom. The deal is we will chafe on the kingdom road if we misunderstand a few crucial realities about the narrow way. As we go on in the narrow way, we will begin to wonder, did I take the wrong gate? And so he offers for us some information so that we might understand What in the world is going on on this way when we see so many around us in apparent comfort and ease in the wide way? One of the first things that we should notice about this metaphor is it's a gate. We know that we enter by grace through faith, and then we walk on a way. Friends, there is a corrective of a misunderstanding about the nature of this metaphor and the proneness of our heart to do something other than what Jesus is describing here. The metaphor simply is not that when we die, we'll get measured to see if we fit through the narrow gate or not. It's not a question of how many sins you can accumulate in your life before you get too sin fat to enter through a narrow gate. This is not a passage in this immediate metaphor about judgment at the end by which we enter. This is a call of a gracious and generous gate through which we enter into a long and difficult road. The fact is that Jesus, by means of his Perfect righteousness has already provided the means of entrance into the kingdom. And we enter by his righteousness, not ours. And his righteousness is perfectly fit to prepare a way for people who are unrighteous to enter into the kingdom. 
Jesus is describing our self-righteousness by which we can qualify for entrance into the kingdom way. He's describing what life looks like for the one who has followed after him in humility and faith. Get the metaphor right. Don't just hear about something narrow, something wide, and then make up whatever you want to think about it. We have to pay attention to what the metaphor actually is. Fundamentally, we've seen through the Sermon on the Mount that the walk that Jesus is calling forth is a walk of humility, poverty of faith, uh, poverty of spirit, of, of faith, and that walk is contrasted with a walk of self-righteousness filled with hypocrisy. Why in the world would he now, at the end of a whole sermon that he's held out faith and poverty of spirit and humility, then say, now get yourself nice and self-righteous so you can enter the kingdom way. It's not what he's talking about. Commentator Jonathan Pennington, he says this, the broad and easy way is the way of the Pharisees, whose righteousness is easily definable, can be gritted out solely at the external level, not committing adultery, not murdering, so on. The narrow and difficult way is Jesus' vision, a righteousness that requires deep roots and the exposure of one's whole person to God. I love that. What the Sermon on the Mount is calling forth is the exposure of our whole person to God. What happened to Isaiah when he got exposed to God? Woe is me, right? Right? We enter by the narrow gate and we say, I don't belong on this road. What grace that you've called me to walk here. What grace that I heard your voice. What grace that you've called me. True virtue, true godliness, true righteousness is a life shaped by exposure to Jesus. Entrance through the narrow gate and walking on the kingdom way with Christ. Now Jesus teaches us about the narrow gate And he does so by way of comparison. He holds out three uh, differences between the narrow gate and the narrow way, and the wide gate and the wide way. He says the wide gate is easy, but the narrow gate is hard. The life of faith will drive a person to dependence upon God. It's simply too difficult to be lived any other way. Did you hear that? The life of the narrow way, the life of the kingdom, will drive a person to need God. We just simply can't walk on that way any other way. It's a life spent walking with Jesus out of necessity. Now here's a question. Do we remember this teaching in our evangelism? Or do we let people get sideswiped by this reality sometime after they have supposedly confessed Christ? When we share the gospel... Do we talk about forgiveness and grace and the love of the Father and not say, and the way is hard? And you are going to find yourself not only in a difficult time at times, you will find yourself in a place by design where your only means of survival is the Lord God. Do we we remember with Jesus to make this call? a part of our evangelism, a part of the gospel message, that entrance is by a narrow way, it is Christ, and the way that follows is not easy. It's hard. The second comparison is the wide gate leads to destruction, but the narrow gate leads to life. Here's the deal. 
As we travel, we have to travel with the end in mind. And Jesus has told us what the end is. You see, he said the way, that path that we walk, that's hard. And so we got to remember, the end is eternal life. Keep walking. It will often be the case in the journey that we feel like we've entered by the wrong gate. This can't be it. This is too hard. Friends, that's not a, it's not a preacher preaching preachy things. You know what I'm talking about. I've said those words out loud. Too hard. This can't possibly be the way, oh, God help. And he helps. And I find out that he's walking with me. Yes, it's hard. And it's the way that he is leading is the way to eternal life. Here's the question we will often ask. Is this the way of life? And if so, why does it feel like I'm being destroyed? We remember the narrow gate leads to life. We've been told that the one who has already gone to the journey's end is Jesus, and he comes back with news of eternal life, and he says, keep on this way. I have already gone to the journey's end. I have already resurrected, and I've sent my messenger, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. Jesus has gone before us, and he brings news of eternal life, and he's given us a word, and the word goes like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, it says, but not crushed. Perplexed, oh yes, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We remember that the end is not our destruction, but eternal life. The way is hard, but the end of the journey is life. And he gives us a third comparison. Many enter the wide gate, but few Enter into the narrow gate. Now this is a this is a hard one. It's one that sort of, as you're walking along, it kind of sideswipes you. As it's just, the world will not be your travel companion. And those who are living according to the ways of the world, and the designs and the philosophies and the thoughts and the common sense of the world will not be traveling with you. In fact, it will seem quite real to you that they are traveling a very different way. We should not be surprised when we look around and find that there are few others on the road with us, Jesus is saying. Jesus warns his disciples of this reality many times. We should not be discouraged to find that there are only a few on the road. Friends, this is such a strong encouragement for the church. There is a sacrifice that is made for gathering in this way. There is a sacrifice that is made to gather on a Wednesday night, on a Thursday night, and to have a meal after a long day and be with the people that you, you're not sure if you can put your feet up on their, on their coffee table or not, because you just want to rest for a little. But when you gather in those places, you remember that in a day that's been filled with worldliness, there's a people who are also on this way. We get to walk with them. If you enter by the narrow gate, then we'd better walk together, or we'll quickly find ourselves walking alone. Now, there is a a teaching. It's a teaching that goes all the way back to the Reformation, 
And certainly much further than that, it's the very teaching of the scriptures. If you were with us during our time in the book of Hebrews, it was a, a fundamental teaching in the book of Hebrews. That the Sermon on the Mount has been a description of an upside down kingdom. The Beatitudes themselves bless a people who are poor in spirit, who mourn. It's a blessing of people who are meek and a a blessing on people who are hunger and thirsty for righteousness. The question is, how are these people blessed? In what way could you make an argument that the grace of God is on a people who are poor in spirit? Seems quite upside down. This upside down nature of the kingdom continues in the metaphor of the narrow gate. It's the way of life for the person who has eternal life, but it's a way that's filled with suffering. There's an utterly essential and thoroughly biblical reality here. It might be the fundamental biblical reality for us to understand in daily life following after Christ, that the way of Jesus, right? What's the title of the whole sermon series? The way of the king, right? The king has so declared and designed and himself lived in integrity and holiness in his kingdom that the way of Jesus the king is the way of the cross. Jesus himself purchases life by what? Dying. He comforts believers in our suffering by reminding us of his suffering. Jesus says that the one who seeks his life will lose it, and the one who loses his life for his sake and for his gospel will save it. It's upside down. It's what Martin Luther He called this the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. Friends, listen to this. This is a quote speaking on Martin Luther's description of the theology of the cross by uh, Pastor Carl Truman. He writes this. At the heart of the theology of the cross was the notion that God reveals himself under his opposite, or to express it another way, God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. How many times is that true? The supreme example of this is the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph apparently over him. His real strength was demonstrated through apparent weakness. This was the way of the theologian of the cross Thought that the theologian of the cross thought about God. The opposite to this was the theologian of glory. That sounds good, right? It's part of the problem. That's how we would think. In simple terms, the theologian of glory assumed that there was a basic continuity between the way of the world and the way that God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God Strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness, a piece of nonsense. But we are theologians of the cross. The cross is entrance into that way of suffering that leads to eternal life. So what does a theology of the cross look like today? Carl Truman goes at one example as it relates to the world, it relates to the church. 
Sad to say, it's often hard to discern where these theologians of the cross are to be found. Yes, many talk about the cross, but the cultural norms of many churches seem no different than the cultural norms of, well, the culture. They often indicate an attitude to power and influence that sees these things as directly related to size, market share, consumeristic packaging, aesthetics, youth culture, media experiences, appearances, swagger and all the all-around noise and pyrotechnics we associate with modern cinema rather than New Testament Christianity. When we gather as a people, when the Lord calls a gathering, what should we expect? Glory, right? We're gathering in the presence of the one who fills the temple with his robe of glory, right? That's what the gathering of the church should look like, glory. No, the gathering of the church should look like a people who have been humbled by the cross and are diligently studying and saying, the way is hard, the the gate is narrow, not many are here. Help us, because we know where it ends, and we don't want to be found anywhere but on this road, Jesus Show us what it looks like to walk on that way. You see, the the gathering of the saints should look like a theology of the cross, a people who are in need of a redeemer and sustainer. The theology of the cross is the theology of the narrow way. This is the first metaphor, the first comparison. Then Jesus moves on to another metaphor. In the process, I've moved on to a wholly different passage in my Bible. So if you'd turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, we'll get there. Probably a good chance to mention this, that there's a reason why it would be so easy. I mean, I'm preaching from an iPad. It'd be so easy just to put the verses like right there so stuff like that doesn't ever happen. But then you might think that I'm just saying my words. I want you to see this. I want you to have it open. I, I, want, I want it to be on the screen. I want it to be in my hands, that what we need is not my words. What we need is his words to sustain us, because this is a difficult way that we have entered into by Christ. Certainly we would be sustained by his words. And he gives it to us. He moves on to another metaphor in verse 15. But look, just like at the beginning of verse 13, the instruction is enter by the narrow gate. He introduces this metaphor with another command. He says, beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus quickly follows up his call to enter the narrow gate with a warning, beware, beware of false prophets. You see, just like Jesus is standing by that narrow gate, And he's calling, come and enter by the narrow gate into the narrow way that leads to eternal life. There is a group of people. They are called false prophets and they are standing by another gate. And sadly, many enter through them on a narrow way. And it leads to destruction. The first thing to notice about these false prophets is that they don't look like false prophets. I can't, I can't believe how quickly I forget that. 
Like I'm looking around for false prophets and I'm thinking, oh, I'll just look online for who are people that look like false prophets, you know? Like, no, they look like prophets. They look like sheep. They look like fellow disciples. So how will we recognize them? How are we going to notice these false prophets who are among the church, Jesus says? He says that you'll, in verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. You see, they aren't sheep. So what are they? Well, if they aren't sheep, and you recognize them by their fruits, what are these sheep-looking things? Well, they're ravenous wolves. This is what Jesus tells us. This, this is important because it tells us what kind of fruit we should expect from the next metaphor that Jesus gives. You see, Jesus in- introduces this. Beware of false teachers. They come in like sheep clothing. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. And then you'll recognize them by their fruits. And then he gives us a metaphor. The metaphor that follows is about identifying false teachers. Okay? And we've been told that they are inwardly, and that's important, inwardly. So you're not going to recognize them just by outward externals. They look like sheep. So when you're looking around, you could say, well, their teaching seems far off, but they just seem like sheep. Yeah, that's the way it works. They do seem like sheep, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And then we should expect a certain kind of fruit that would come. These false prophets aren't looking to be led like Jesus is, like sheep. They're looking to enter into a road. They are not entering to look into a road that's marked by suffering. They aren't on this road because they're willing to hunger and thirst in order to be satisfied by righteousness. No, ravenous wolves enter because they are seeking to devour and to be satisfied, to have the comforts of the wide way. They're looking to lead themselves to a road filled with feasting. What do they just consume? What do they feed on? The church. They feed on the church. The false prophet is the one who fundamentally rejects suffering as the way of Jesus. I think that is, that's driving at the center of what Jesus is getting at here. Why are they the false prophets of the wide way? Well, what they love is a way of ease, not a way of suffering. And so we ought to watch for people who claim an easier way than the way that is marked out by Jesus. Watch out for those who claim an easier way than the way that is marked out by Jesus. The one who teaches that sounds like a way of comfort, of acceptance in the world. That one is not leading you. That one is seeking to devour you. Second Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, listen, it's an amazing list. I, I read this, and I'm like, oh man, I think I, I'm covered in here somewhere. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like you might be able to identify this people, right? Except for the next words, having the appearance of godliness. There must be a way to be about these things and have sheep's 
clothing on. Now here's the contrast. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And here's we get to the heart of what's going on with the false prophet. Uh, The end of this long list is the key to recognizing false prophets, the prophets of the wide gate of destruction. It isn't that they are godless or that they look externally lawless. It's that they deny the kingdom's power. And what's the kingdom's power? The cross. The cross, the way that's marked out by suffering. That's why the wide way looks the way it does. It's not a way that's marked out by suffering. It's not a way that's entered into by the suffering of our Savior. So there's no power in it. You don't even have to go to 2 Corinthians to see this. It's in the Sermon on the Mount itself. If you've been paying attention, you can see that it's a people who repent not only of their sin, but see the sin that's on the inside. A people who not only repent of sin, but also their self-righteousness. And and they're posturing, they're pretending, and they're performing. The question is, do we see these fruits? Do we see what the Scripture calls the fruit of repentance? It's such an important point. The righteousness that Jesus requires is not a mere external righteousness, the, the putting on of religious norms, a righteousness that hears the law as law and then obeys it so that they can fit through. Jesus requires a righteousness that's the fruit of repentance, that knows that apart from grace, there's no hope. Because his grace is sufficient not only to forgive sins, but to lead us in paths of righteousness. And so we walk humbly, step by step, as we're being transformed on the narrow way. So Jesus is teaching just a couple chapters before in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit of the good tree is a fruit that is born of repentance not of self-righteousness. I'll tell you, friends, it is the greatest evangelistic tool that we have not to live in the midst of the world and show them what a Christian looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really share the gospel with people. Instead, I show them how I live and trust God. The world's seen that. It's called self-righteousness, and it's gross. You know what the world hasn't seen? Repentance. Someone that has lived wrongly and says, I think that was wrong, what I did and what I said. Will you forgive me? I have no right to demand it of you, but it would... I know God, my God, has forgiven me, and I ask that you would forgive me. Repentance. And then to walk in the fruit of that repentance. Friends, there is no greater fruit of repentance than worship to be a people who have confessed, hear the word, and then sing songs of praise. Matt made mention of our liturgy. That's the liturgy. They aren't just three songs so that we can kind of sing a little bit before we go and leave on a good note. That's not how the service is put together. That's not the the liturgy of the church in ages past. It's that we have repented, we've heard a good word, and we have a song to sing. And so... Whether I'm a singer, whether that's kind of my thing or not, I sing it because it's true and because the people, the few who are with us need to hear it. And so we sing. Now, 
Jesus continues in this metaphor. He gives this metaphor of the tree and its fruit. And then he moves on, and I think rather unhelpfully, it looks like verse 21 is a new section. I think it's actually a clarification of the metaphor that's gone before. We have these three metaphors all next to each other, and verse 21 is a continuation. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but rather at the end it says, he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus is offering a helpful clarification. He presents a scenario where a group of false prophets appear appear to be bearing good fruits. They're prophesying, casting out demons, doing mighty works. Surely this group of people are great, good prophets of the straight and narrow. Isn't the fruit they bear good fruit? According to Jesus' teaching already, these guys measure up, don't they? But then he offers two clarifications. First, Jesus says, when Jesus says that you'll know them by their fruits, he isn't talking about outward deeds. All three of the things that they rise up and say, and it's not that they were caught caught off guard. They're not like, oh, didn't we do good things? No, they're standing up and they're asserting their self-righteous justification. Hey, Jesus, who do you think you are? We did all the good stuff in your name. Let us in. Outward self-righteousness. We're far too quick to give authority, to give attention. Just because someone has a blog, a bestseller, a promotional big campaign, popular broadcast, it's a lot of busyness. But it's just external deeds. There's a second thing, a second clarification, and that is that fruit bearing takes time. A tree doesn't immediately bear fruit. That's how trees work. They look like a tree. You know, there's like wood and branches and maybe some leaves. But you don't know what kind of tree it is until it finally bears fruit, and that takes time. Now, there's a strong argument here for walking with a faithful church over a long time. In this way, you can do two things. You can test the fruitfulness of the teaching there. Test it. Test the teaching, test the teachers over time and see if good fruit is born. And you yourself may be tested in the midst of the church because your fruit might take a, a bit of time to bear itself out. What a grace to be among a people long enough that your own sin and self-righteousness is found out. You know the hardest thing about being a pastor of this church in its seventh year, moving into its eighth year? The church is starting to notice things about its pastor. It's starting to notice this pastor's sin and self-righteousness. And that's not a good time to run away and go find another church that appreciates me. That's a good time to stay and let the church minister the gospel and call, yeah, It's a hard way. Your sin and self-righteousness gets found out, doesn't it? And so we keep walking together. I think it's also an argument for the value of the ordinary pastor. We're in an age where it's so easy to find someone to teach you. I don't really go to church. You hear this all the time, all the time. I really go to church. Well, I mean, I'm part of that church, but I really never go. But I listen to. Easy to find. Read a blog, listen to a podcast, watch a church service with a celebrity preacher on the internet. Many of these teachers 
Whether good or bad, false or true, it doesn't matter. Two things are still true of them. The first is this. They are better communicators than your local elders. All of them are better than me, better than Joel, better than Matt, better than Mark, better than any of the elder candidates that will ever step here, open the word, and preach. They're all better communicators, every single one of them. They're better at the external things, whether or not they're better at the internal things. The Pharisees were the same way. They were the best religious people the religion had to offer. And so they had the public seats. It's true. They're better communicators. And they're also untestable. This is the one reason I don't just give attention to leaders or authors or preachers who aren't part of faithful churches. I I trust that a faithful church would test that teacher whose book I would read whose podcast I would listen to. I love it when I'm listening to a podcast and the the podcast host talks about their church because I know they're in a place that's tested. But the fact is, even in that case, I can't test them. The church who is in our midst cannot test them. Self-ordained prophets of our day are far more likely to be false prophets because there's no body to walk beside them to find out they're fruits. It'd be easy to name names here. To be honest, I wrote down a bunch. But for now, let me simply say the more advertising dollars that are being spent and spilt upon the various teachers, the more likely you are to see the book at Walmart or as the bestsellers on Amazon, the less likely the book is to be valuable to read. Less likely. There's some good stuff that's... For Thank God people are actually reading it. But it's less likely, the content is more likely to be tested by advertising executives than the local church. That is, you cannot walk with them. You can't, they can't walk with you. You cannot test the teachers whether they're truly walking with you or seeking to devour you. You can only hear their words, but you can't watch their life. It's an argument for the ordinary eldership. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, it's their responsibility, the responsibility of the leaders to keep watch over your souls. You can't do that if they can't see you. And you can't walk with them. The point is this, your elders, your ordinary pastors don't measure up to the podcasts or the books. We know it, but you can know this. You can test this. We love Jesus and we love you. Or you can test us and find out we don't. And you can walk a close enough with ordinary elders to see if the rest is true. It's one of the reasons why at Cross Point Coast we have a slow road of leadership. We want to see a people who labor and in time they will bear fruit. Just this week, we sat down with someone and we invited them into a a bit of a leadership position. And in the midst of that, I'll tell you, Joel and I, as we were talking about this, we said, this is easy because the person has already walked in this. Why do we not, why why do we feel very free to name this opportunity when the person is already walking, bearing the fruit of the opportunity? That's the slow word road of leadership. God makes the leader. 
The church simply recognizes what the Lord is doing. It's why at Cross Point Coast, there is no higher calling, no higher office for us to, or no higher practice for us to walk in than the calling of partnership. Go and be a partner. Bear good fruit. Now the passage ends with a, a final comparison, a final metaphor. In verse 24, we have the two houses. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. For the third time, he states it positively. He gives us the calling, the calling to enter the gate, the calling to be aware of false prophets, and the calling to build by hearing and doing. Hear and do. Now, hear this. This is not a new law, a new rule that you need to keep self-righteously to qualify yourself for the kingdom. Again, that completely undoes the whole of the sermon. Why would he end in that way? Now, all you who that I've humbled by my teaching, hear it and do it so you can be self-qualified. It doesn't make any sense. What Jesus has given us in his sermon is a way of humility and faith and dependence. We hear him and more than just our lives get shaped, more than just our behaviors are shaped by his words, our souls are shaped by his words. Rain falls, floods come, winds blow, the house is beaten, and that's truth. I don't even have to make that point strong. You know what I'm talking about. The narrow way isn't easy, but it will not fail. It stands on something, something solid, the rock of the gospel, the way of the king and his kingdom. To hear his word and then do it is an act of faith. That's why it's called faith-filled obedience. God, your way is the only way. Your grace is the only grace. Your cross is the only means of entrance. I'll walk in that way. It's good. It's my only hope. It's the only way that leads to eternal life. But for those who do not, who hear and do not do, their souls have not been shaped by the call to repentance. It may seem easy, but when the greater rains, the floods and the winds come, the momentary trials of this life, they're nothing, but the winds of judgment are coming. And the one who is shaking their fist in the air and crying out to the Lord, on my own I can live in this world, will crash down it. Powerfully difficult to hear, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The warning in this metaphor is that we ought not to presume that we have followed after Jesus. Just because we have heard his words does not mean that we're walking in the kingdom way, that we've been transformed by the call to faith and repentance. We may hear his words on the outside of the gate just as well on the inside. Jesus' question for those who are on the outside is not, have you heard my voice? His question is, have you understood my message? Do you see your need of me? Or are you still trying to make your own way, whether that is the way of sin or self-righteousness? Friends, we're at the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it ends with a, a call to action. But let us remember the call to action that is made at the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are whom? The poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. 
This is the kingdom way. Entrance by the theology of the cross into a way marked by suffering that leads to eternal life. I call you this morning. I, I echo the words of Jesus to enter the narrow way. Heavenly Father, we know that the only means of entrance is faith in your great name, forgiveness by your great grace, perseverance by means of your Holy Spirit's adoption work that we will be brought to the Father. Thank you for the inheritance of eternal life that is for the redeemed. But I pray for the church. I pray for all of those gathered this morning, particularly those who have gathered with us over and over again, but are on the outside hearing the voice. I pray that you would give wisdom for that one to discern and this morning be cut to the heart that their fall would not be great, but they might enter in by faith. Lord, I pray regarding false teachers. I pray that you would guard us, that you would give us boldness to guard one another and that we would teach one another well according to your word and repent where we have fallen short of this. Lord, I pray that you would establish us on the bedrock of your word that endures and will not be shaken. Inform our words, change our words to be like your words, for in your words are life. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, our King, Redeemer, and the one who brings us to the Father, who together give us the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your great name. Amen.